Guys, mental health is something that Dan and I are extremely passionate about, which is why it excites us to say that we are partnering with BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode and our podcast. BetterHelp is the world's leading therapy service, and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professional and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash BacksideGroundBalls. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BacksideGroundBalls. by Riverside. Welcome back to episode 104 of the Backside Ground Balls podcast. We're here tonight for our instant reactions from the trade deadline. My name is Trevor Powers, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Galati, as well as our producer, Phoebe. Dan, what are our initial feelings coming out of the trade deadline? How are we feeling? It's now we're about two hours post-trade deadline. How's the feels? That trade deadline sucked. It was terrible. I mean, as a fan, you want... You're waiting for the big names and the big moves. And last year, it felt like there were a lot of them. Um, and I don't know what's to blame here other than, you know, just surface level things, you know, without getting into how teams value prospects and stuff like that. Just surface level. Two things have ruined the trade deadline in my mind. Balanced schedule, because I think that's created, um, and some of the new rules to a little bit, that's created, you know, such a cluster in both the leagues and the wild card because you don't have – Division teams beating up, you know, you're not playing each other as much, so you're not beating up on each other, eliminating teams. There's a lot more teams, I think, that feel like they have a shot to get in, even though they're sitting six and a half games out. And also the Phillies. Um, I think the Braves can be lumped in on this. And I think the – I wouldn't say the Nationals because we've seen good deadlines since 19. But the runs that those two teams went on, specifically the Phillies last year, now everyone's like, wow, you get the third wild card, you still can do it. And it bothers me, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more because it's like, look, take a look. Some of these teams need to take a look in the mirror. I don't. You're you're, you're holding on to pieces. I just think you can trade some pieces, especially in the deadline, and and we're seeing young guys come up more and more and earlier and earlier. And yeah, you're taking lottery tickets, but you can turn your franchise around. I feel like it it feels like so much quicker nowadays than it used to be. So for some of these teams to buy. Hold just made no sense to me. Um, so my initial reaction was that was kind of a, a, a boring. And I think the, the the teams that made out best were the ones who sold. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. Uh, we will get into winners and losers and, and go a little bit more in detail on that. But I'm with you. Even the teams that I would consider winners at this point in time were very underwhelming. Like just, just the yeah. way it is, um, you know, and even – you know, except for the Mets, there was nobody who was like aggressive, like get everybody off our roster that has value. And you could even make an argument that the Mets probably could have moved a couple more pieces on their roster that would have netted them a return a la Pete Alonso. But we all know power hitting first basemen don't have a market. Um, that's just how it goes. And, and that's will always be the case. So, you know, it, it kind of makes a little bit more sense to hold on to a Pete Alonso. But yeah, I mean, I think the whole league was losers. Um, it like I could de- I could deem probably eighteen to twenty five teams legitimate losers um, for not being aggressive, for holding on to their prospects, for whatever it would be. 
But you're right in the fact that there have been deadlines since 2019. But I think it's more of the fact that there's teams that are more enticed to be buyers or at least stand pat at the, at this point in time in the year that the Nationals have created, that the Braves and the Phillies have created. It's not necessarily about go be aggressive, don't trade your prospects, whatever it is. It's just like, hey, like we feel like we have enough talent here. We can sell tickets, make it interesting for the next couple months, and then be in a position come October where you're one playoff series away from making a lot of money between TV deals, between revenue shares, between filling out your stadium, everything like that. So it's kind of crazy to look back at. And I, you know, we bring up prospects and and I found this tweet uh, today that I wanted to read on air. So I'm going to try to get it out here before um, we get into the nitty gritty of things. But this was from MLB network today. We have since 2013 to 2022 trade deadline deals. There were 573 prospects traded prospects to become impact players out of that 573 was 17 that's three percent prospects to become impact players or contributors that was 62 at 10.8 percent so this is very interesting because and they also noted that 29 percent never played in the big league so obviously that came from mlb network that's some pretty good research right there and and i kind of want to get started with this conversation because we see these teams that are aggressive on holding on to their prospects right the orioles are a great example the dodgers ability to go get or whoever was reaching out to go get a dylan cease right there was obviously a threshold of not being or not wanting to go over the asking price these sellers because it was a seller driven market but we're talking about three percent of prospects become impact players and again that is smart savvy training trading right The Nationals before Juan Soto became a a well-known commodity didn't go ship him in 2017 when teams were begging for Juan Soto when he was outside of the top 100, right? No, they held firm. That looks smart in theory, but they also did the same thing with Victor Robles, and we see what he's become, right? So there is a give and a take here, but when you look at a team like the Orioles, and I would sit here and say that the Orioles – did the right thing. They didn't go overboard. They weren't too aggressive. They didn't trade somebody that they would regret trading. But when you look at the percentages of prospects that actually become impact players, you could actually make an argument that outside of Jackson Holiday, there isn't a prospect in their farm system that would be worth, you know, not trading for a Dylan C. So what are your kind of thoughts on on that and, and what the prospect return is before we get into exactly what these trades were over the last couple of days? Yeah, I guess you make me change my stance a little bit, but it was a seller's market. So I guess that's why I'm bothered that more teams didn't sell because I almost have a bigger gripe. I mean, I have a gripe with a lot of these teams, but one of my bigger gripes are with a couple of teams who I thought should have sold and didn't just looking at the returns that the Mets and the White Sox got. Because I even think the White Sox did a good job and and they sold. I mean, they should have moved C's probably. They should have moved Eloy, Tim Anderson, but they, they sold like it. Giolito and I mean they sold so many guys um when it was all said and done that I was like good job White Sox like now the fact that they're talking about trying to compete in 24 is ridiculous to me but regardless yeah and but I also believe that you should trade your prospects like I, I I'm in agreement with you like you there isn't a prospect and you know you go back and and I guess what made me really start thinking this for this year's trade deadline was a couple weeks ago I read the Roy Halladay book and you know, a lot of it was about the Phillies and the Phillies acquiring him. And there were, you know, a couple of trades in there where they got, they went out and got Cliff Lee and they went out and got Roy Halliday. And if you read those trades, you would go, who? Because mm-hmm. you have no, like at the time, All the time. these were yep. big prospects. And you were like, you, none of those guys did anything yep. in major. And the, at mm-hmm. the time, the Phillies got basically the two premier, two of the premier pitchers in, in the American League. And they built that staff. And yeah. you look at the Roy Oswalt trade, you know, so I, I'm, I'm a big believer in trading your prospects. Uh, to go get it. But to me, I think you have to be able to evaluate where you're at to do it. You know, I don't think, I don't think some of these teams should have gone and bought. I think they should have sold, but if you're the Orioles, yeah, do more than Jack Flaherty. And even again, I I didn't necessarily, you know, because there was rumors when we had talked a couple weeks ago about Verlander and Scherzer. And it's like, I don't think they're one pitcher away. They got a couple pitchers away. Yeah. Like go get a couple Orioles. You have the prospect capital to do it. I know it feels like the price is steep right now, but sitting back and 
like everyone giving them a hand clap for having this great prospect pool means nothing. Like if if Kobe Mayo and Connor Norby and DL Hall and all these guys and, and Kowser's just getting his feet wet. Like if, if they all turn out to be league average and you had a chance to go out and, and get Dylan Cease and maybe another starter and really solidify this thing, that's not going to look good either. So why not take that chance? I mean, you're in first place. You know, a lot of teams, you know, again, the Rays, the Rays didn't do much here. And I know the Rays are in yeah. a little bit of a different stance because they never want guys with, with a lot of money. They're never, they, they rarely yeah. ever go get rentals. Nelson Cruz a couple years ago was like the only one and he was cheap, but yeah, I, I just don't like what a lot of the, the, the kind of the position and the way a lot of these teams went about it. Yeah, and Dan O'Dowd was on MLB Network today, and he he had a really good tangent. Now he wanted the Orioles to be a lot more aggressive than I did. I I didn't think th- I don't think now was the time. I think if anything, a Jack Flaherty deal, you don't give up much. That's okay. And then maybe a Dylan Cease, where you have a controllable starter, where you can kind of inflict some of your development on him, get him back to Cy Young form, get him in the strike zone enough. That's kind of what I thought was best case scenario for this Orioles team. I didn't think. You know, selling the farm for Justin Verlander. I didn't think going and getting Max Scherzer even on top of that for a team that doesn't want to spend a lot of money was necessary. But he had a really good point where he said, people think of prospects as the future of your organization, but prospects in terms of what they are to an organization is also to fill holes at the major league level. And there's this other thing that happens on a yearly basis where we sit on here and laud the Orioles for every move they make and every step they do. And that's called the draft. And that's called international signings, right? So being able to use those assets that you have developed, that you've gotten a return on investment already, turn them into potential major league pieces and then run it back the next year on the draft because you're the best in the business at what you do on that point. There shouldn't be prospects that you're stressed about losing because of that. Obviously, the Jackson holidays, these are the the one of a kind that come by once every you know couple generations, it feels like, because he's been that good at every level. But you're probably nobody's probably asking for them as much as you know Mets fans probably wanted to milk a Jackson holiday out of an Orioles like that's just not realistic and and I think that every organization outside of Baltimore understands that and they're not going to go kicking down your door if you're not willing to move the future you know centerpiece of your of your roster what he looks like at this point in time and you know even to go back to the trade side of things of you know, more teams to be sellers. And everybody thinks that every trade is Fernando Tatis for James Shields, right? Like all of these Jordan Alvarez for Josh Fields, right? Like these blockbuster failures of trades, even from savvy organizations. And that's what people hang their hats on. But there's a lot more of the Manny Machados to the Dodgers for four plus one, you know, for one and, you know, one fringe top 100 guy and all of the things like that that come into play. And then on top of all of that, you have to consider the fact of the matter that it's just it's tough to identify these prospects. It's tough to put them in that position and to actually identify what's going to be the future. But you have to understand what your future outlook is, right? That's most people's complaints with the Angels. Like you talked about the White Sox being delusional for thinking they're going to compete in 2024. And I think you're 100% right. But I think the issue with what we have more gripes with as teams like the Cubs that have no path, right? They go by, they send prospect capital. Even you could probably argue the angels, even though I love what they've done, you know, you're making that push. You're trying to make Shohei happy, but have an idea of what your future looks like. And there's one team across baseball who did this better than anybody this weekend. And that's the Mets, right? They looked in the mirror. They said, look at what the Braves are going to be. They're not going anywhere. They got Acuna, they got Olsen, they got all these dudes locked up for the foreseeable future. We have 39 to 40-year-old starters that are declining quickly. We view Scherzer and Verlander as declining. We can get something back. We're comfortable throwing money. Let's reset here. Let's get a couple years down the road. Let's hopefully see what happens with the Braves over the course of those couple years and take our chances. That was the only team that looked in the mirror and said, we need to be aggressive because we see the writing on the wall. When you look at what the Cubs are, like that's not a championship caliber team, right? That's not. The Tigers, you're not a championship caliber team. You hold on to Eduardo Rodriguez, who has an opt-out at the end of the year. And I get that's tough, but how do you not pick up the phone on Friday and say, Eduardo, would you be willing to go to L.A.? 
And he goes, no. And then you hang up the phone with the Dodgers. What are you doing getting to the final stages of a, of a deal in place and then finding out Eduardo won't go? That's your fault as an organization. That is 100% on you. If Eduardo wasn't willing to go out west, you should have known that from the jump and you should have been like Orioles, Phillies, whatever team's in the market for a starting pitcher, we need to focus on the East Coast because Eduardo is not moving. And I know I went through like three different things there, but I saw your reaction when I started talking about the Tigers. And yeah, that makes them a loser in my mind for not getting something back for Eduardo Rodriguez. Yeah, you just took me all over the mulberry bush there. I don't even know where to dive into that. Uh, the, the Tigers thing, yeah, you're right. No, you're right. How do you not – why wouldn't the call to, to – if the, as soon as you start even engaging in talks with the Dodgers, unless you're worried about a leak, but I doubt it. Like how are you not picking up the phone and, and saying it or, or going to the clubhouse and being like, Eduardo, like will you waive it for the Dodgers? Um, that seems backwards to me. How do you get to the finish line and then – although it always seems that way, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like the last piece is always, will they waive their no trade? How are you getting, I don't understand why it's not like as soon as, you know, the Dodgers pick up the phone and say, Hey, we want to talk about Eduardo Rodriguez. And now maybe the Dodgers didn't do it until today. Cause they were, they had been working on uh Verlander. True. Um, so maybe that just started to come together, but I, like you said, they shouldn't have, the Tigers did a bad job holding on to that piece. Um, they really shouldn't have. And I mean, I'll accept your Mets thing, but you 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 coined the phrase "keep that same energy" for Steve Cohen. The fact that they're now backtracking this, yeah, they're doing a good job. I, I think that at a, at a time down the road, I don't know if we want to get into it tonight. The fact that they're paying ninety million plus luxury for prospects when you look at it, right? Because they're sending all that money with Verlander and Scherzer, they're having Let, to pay ninety let's get it, ninety let's, plus for. Let's prospects. get into this like, now. We'll, we'll circle back on the trades that happened because. I got to, that is keeping that energy. Like, I think it's really smart what Steve Cohen has done because instead of planning to the trade deadline and then trying to reevaluate how much money you're willing to spend, he said in March, I'm willing to spend this much money. And he basically said, Max Scherzer's salary for the rest of the year, Justin Verlander's salary for the rest of the year, all the guys we offloaded, I'm comfortable enough to pay them through September. We need to get the best prospects available back. And I'm willing to take the financial risk because we put these dudes' name in ink. We signed these contracts in March. I'm comfortable with that. Let's get these prospects back. And they did the best they could do on 40-year-old starters getting three top five prospects in their system right now, three top 100 prospects. That's huge for 40-year-old starters. And that is keeping that energy. It's a little much to send $54 million for two prospects. But in my opinion, that just shows he has FU money and he's still willing to throw that FU money around. We've we've known he has FU money though, and I guess my point is 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 you could have completely avoided sending your ninety million dollars to Houston and to Texas if you had just done what and been smart about this from the beginning. You and I sat here in the offseason and told them that some of these deals were going to be bad, specifically the Verlander one. I remember when that news broke, I st- I laughed out loud because like you saw, like we've seen this coming. Like so many people are talking about what a disappointment the Mets are. You and I aren't because we've sat here and said how poorly this roster was constructed in the beginning. So I'm not, I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but for me, I'm not going to sit here and compliment a guy for doing something that I'm sitting in my house and freaking Raleigh without a paycheck for it, telling you that it was a bad job. Like that, I'm not going to be like, hey, good, hey, good for you for getting the best prospects available and sending 90 million out the door. You could have made other moves this offseason to avoid this whole situation in the first place. You wanted to build for 26, you could have built for 26 starting last year. You know, because I don't know if you saw it, but the the article comes out where Scherzer just Scherzer was clearly upset about how it all went down because he spoke freely to the media today. And he talked about how he sat down with Billy Epler and said, so what's the plan? And Billy Epler said, we're looking at 25, 26. We're not going to pay for high echelon free agents this offseason. So they're completely flipping. And the reason they're having to even do that and be in that position is because they spent, they, they did a bad job spending money to get to this point. They did, they, they poorly built their construction. Now, yeah, sure. We can sit here and, and, and you're not wrong at all. Like, good job going and getting the best you can for it because when you're making these trades, what you have to do is go and, and, and get the best player possible back or best prospect possible in return. And they've done that. But I just – I'm not going to fully 
compliment someone for putting themselves in that situation. Like this isn't, this isn't trading guys who have been with the organization for five years and look, the end of the contract, we had some great years together. The end of the Justin Verlander, you gave him $45 million to pitch for you for two months, three months, two healthy months. And then you're paying 40 million to ship him out the door. And I don't agree with the other side of that trade either, but that's, that's, you know, that's another point of, 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 you know, talking point. But I, so I just, I have a hard time being comfortable sitting there and going, good job, Steve Cohen. Good job, Mets. Now, if I'm just strictly looking at the returns, they did do a good job. Yes. Like getting Acuna back for Scherzer. Get, I like the lottery. We talked about the lottery tickets for a 38 year old rental reliever. That was really good. But to me, it's just like, you're paying 90 million for guys to go pitch in the, in the American league West. You could have spent your money elsewhere. Yeah, but can you, can you give credit to at least acknowledging your mistakes? Like every front office executive, sure. every owner has made mistakes. And you could argue that while I think Scherzer and Verlander handcuffed their organization a little bit in terms of the value they were able to spread around their team, neither of them were bad for New York. The Mets. Scherzer had a great year last year. He's been dealing with injuries since 2019. That was well known. Sure, Mets fans want to trash him because he's kind of regressed this year. Um, but on the whole, he but pitched to a that- three-year right. Yeah, that comes into play, and and that's something you could talk about with every team, right? Like that's sure, any long-term no, no contract. No other team's handing out these albatrosses of contracts for guys that they know have an injury history and are in their 40. I mean, again, Trevor, this isn't a 32-year-old starting pitcher who you gave these deals to. Like, there is significant – there's been years and years of baseball. Like, outside of Nolan Ryan, who's sick and, – and I guess Jamie Moyer, but Nolan Ryan, who else has pitched in, at an elite level well into their 40s? No one. So it's like injury history. I mean, Verlander's two years removed from Tommy John. And again, they didn't pitch poorly, but you're going to handcuff your roster, which we all said they were doing by handing out these huge contracts to guys in their forties. Like that's where I'm like, but yes, they then recognized it and they pivoted and good for them because there are organizations out there who would be, who would dig their heels in. I'm looking across the coast at San Diego who would dig their heels in and say, no, we're just going to, we're going to keep making the situation worse. So on that front, yeah, good job by them to, I guess, have the self-awareness to say, look, we really messed this up badly. And we're going to do whatever it takes to get ourselves out of it. So that is good because sometimes you you run into these things where these guys in the front offices have egos so big that they would then just double down. And the Mets haven't done that. No, they haven't. They haven't. And again, that's it. That's why I think there, there definitely needs to be at least some credit given. Like I said, I think ultimately Scherzer and Verlander, while in the grand scheme of things, might not go down as the best signings of all time. I don't think they were the worst. Right. And I don't think they were the worst on this team. I think Nimmo's been good this year, but you have him locked up for eight years. Right. I'm a big proponent of signing smaller contracts. Again, probably preferably not to 40 year olds at 43 million a clip, you know, coming off of Tommy John. But that's besides the point. You can have you can swallow the pill of one more year, one more year with Nimmo. Let's just say he starts dealing with injuries. The Aaron Hicks situation, like the Yankees tried to spread seventy million out through seventy years, and it just looks horrible. Like you get no production out of them. It's nothing with Verlander and Scherzer. It's like quick. They're in and out like it never happened. And you know, so again, I do believe in the shorter term contracts are less stressful on a front office psyche in terms of being able to at least offload it, you know, turn the page, whatever it is, that value, you know, it's at least off the books, but that McNeil contract, right? Those contracts, I'm not going to say the Lindor contract, because since you called him out, he's been really good and he's been one of the best shortstops in baseball, but like, it's just the wealth of like what they've done as a team, the Edwin Diaz contract. And again, I mean, you look back at this team in spring, I don't think either of us said that they would be sub 500 and selling at the deadline. You know, I, I think the, we thought the roster wasn't up to the Braves par, right? was kind of our comparison. And even to a certain extent, the Phillies when they're healthy and and rolling and playing good baseball. So we can't sit here and say that we completely knew that they were going to end up selling Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander and paying off those contracts and all the stuff like that. We didn't know Edwin Diaz was going to be hurt, but 
in terms of what their roster was, you could tell they needed to pivot, especially when guys like Brett Beatty, Mark Ventos, those guys come up and they're not generational talents like most prospects are not, and they have their struggles. And you want to start building around Francisco Alvarez with Francisco Lindor core. You can extend Alonzo. Sure, McNeil's going to be there, but whatever. He's not very valuable. Nimmo's going to be your center fielder, at least for the foreseeable future. Move some pieces in and be able to grow for that future. I worry about their pitching development. They got no pitchers back in any of these deals. I know Mets fans are collectively worried about their pitching development at this point in time. But I think all things considered, for what the situation was today, you have to give credit where credits do that they at least took an aggressive stance. They didn't sit on their hands. They didn't do what a lot of organizations, like you said, would do. They didn't just take this, this, oh, well, we trust the back of the baseball card. These guys are going to figure it out. We're going to make a push in the second half. We're in the wild card. We're going to win in 2025, 2024, whatever it would be down the road. Like, look at the White Sox, right, saying they're going to win in 2024. I personally believe if the Mets made no moves, they'd have a better shot at winning a World Series next year than the White Sox do making no moves right like they're closer to winning and they're doing the full reset whereas we're seeing teams like the white Sox hold on to guys like cease eloy that they're probably never going to win with and they're going to eventually end up moving at the next deadline or the next offseason and everything like that so but on the other side of that deal obviously is the astros being able to retain justin verlander there was big news, obviously, in the offseason. James Click was was sent packing from Houston Astros, and Dana Brown was brought in. Dana Brown's more of a, a scout baseball kind of guy, whereas James Click was kind of your your model nerd and, and all the things like that. So um, a little bit of interesting stuff that's kind of been piquing my interest in how the this Astros roster was built, and obviously they're competitive, so it's not like they're a bad team. There could be arguably the the AL favorite at this point in time after the Verlander edition, but they end up signing Montero to a good contract, big chunk of contracts. We say it all the time. Bullpens are important. Relievers are replaceable. You've seen that a lot with the Seattle Mariners specifically. Jared Depoto might have our podcast on on replay on the weekly basis with the moves he makes trading his high leverage relievers every year. Makes an aggressive move. Montero flops because he's a reliever. Kendall Graveman, then they bring him back in, eat a ton of his contract. He's a guy that they had that James Click let walk and then signed a guy like Montero for cheap and ended up developing into a bullpen arm because he understood that relievers are volatile. And now you're turning around and you're trading your two top prospects. The best prospect that the Mets got is, in my mind, Ryan Clifford in my in terms of my evaluations, which is going to be the number two guy that um, the Astros sent. So you're sending legitimately your top two prospects for a guy you could have signed in the offseason. I haven't seen the exact numbers of what was offered. I've heard whispers of two years, 80 million. So if you were six million off and now you have to trade your top two prospects to get that guy back and sure, it's going to be a great investment for them. They're going to pay him for two years with 39 million. Uh, that sounds great to everybody for a Justin Verlander level talent, but it just doesn't make sense at this point in time to end up moving your top prospects for a guy you could have just had for, for some cash and Jim Crane loves him. So, you know, Jim Crane would have ponied up to sign that contract. Yeah, and I think the biggest things, the biggest gripe with the, with Dana Brown right now is just the the reliever contracts. I mean, Montero's just like relievers are so volatile. No one should be paying. I mean, you don't see reliever contracts handed out like that. And I guess you know we were giving him that benefit of the doubt because he was working for the Astros. That we you know we didn't really ridicule it that much at the time. But yeah, then to turn around and have to get give up Gilbert and Clifford for Verlander at the deadline anyway is it, it kind of yeah it just doesn't make much sense and and the roster has been kind of exposed this year by injuries you can always use starting pitching I, I going and getting Verlander is great I guess with McCullers out for the year but I mean they, they really needed probably another bat although if Jordan's getting healthy I mean it they were just kind of in a weird situation. I don't love it. I don't love what they had to give up for Verlander. Again, you're giving up Verlander and you're going to have him on the team. He, he's got an option for 2025 in that contract, I believe, too. So you could potentially yeah, it's have a two vested years in, option. Right. If he pitches 150 innings in 2024, it, it locks him in for 35 mil for that year. So now you're going to be paying all that plus the two prospects for Verlander. And I know the Mets sent over a chunk of change, but. 
again, what's Verlander's age curve? Are you going for one more and then it's going to be, we're going to see the Astros looking to rebuild? I don't know, just because they have been so good at drafting and developing talent in the past. Um, they look kind of thin right now. So I think this is an interesting crossroads situation for me with the Astros because you kind of take a look and take a step back and you look at all these things now compiled over the first six, seven months of Dana Brown's tenure and you're like, I don't really love what he's done. Um, and I, it's kind of a weird situation because for, you know, seven years now, everything the Astros touched turned to gold. Yes. Yes. And it was not by making moves like Dana Brown has done. Um, and again, I'm not doubting that the Astros will continue to be fine. Quite frankly, I think that they have a, I don't want to say a foolproof process, but you know, it, it's tough because what bothered me most about this trade, and I get $54 million coming back. There is no prospect that's worth $54 million. Um, no handful of prospects. I mean, even Jackson Holiday would be worth $54 million to any to the Baltimore Orioles because that's, you know, you could go sign Shohei Otani for, a, you know, that's one year Shohei Otani right there, right? Like, so that's a lot of money to be back just for prospects to be paid off. But again, like, He's cleaning up his own mess with the last success that James Click left with them. Getting Ryan Clifford in the 11th round for $1.25 million yep. was as savvy as savvy gets. Yep. That is elite front office work right there. And James Cliff hand, handed him a potential top 15, top 20 prospect in an 11th round draft pick who at 19 years old was dominating high a dominating he has done nothing but hit since he got to professional baseball and dana brown goes oop i might have messed this whole free agency with justin verlander up so thank you for your your gift of a draft pick i'm trading him away and drew gilbert who's played outside of you know what his original draft position was his return on investment boom you're gone too so james James Click leaves the the cupboards full of potential top prospects for Dana Brown just to turn around and throw them away, right? Like, and just for a guy that they could have gotten for money this offseason. Now, if you're going to tell me that they were at two years, 30 million, three years, 30 million with Verlander, and the Mets came in and said, two years, 86 million total, $35 million vesting option, and you weren't even in the same ballpark of what Cohen was throwing around. Sure. Getting him for two years, 39 million with the potential for a vested option even thrown in there. Fine. That's okay. You can trade some prospects for that because 54 million is worth it. But for how aggressive James Jim, Jim Crane was in making sure that this Verlander deal got done to bring him back to Houston tells me that he was probably pretty aggressive in trying to get him to stay in Houston in the first place. And this is all encompassing for the fact that you're talking about a 40-year-old starter who has a career low K and whiff percentage, who coming off Tommy John has seen a consistent regression in his K and whiff percentage. And that is a major, major cause for concern for somebody who is 40 years old. You mentioned this on when we were talking at some point. This is not a guy who is 30 years old. It might have been our last podcast when we were talking about deals. This is not a guy who's 30 years old having a rough year. This isn't Dylan Cease who's lost the strike zone after a Cy Young caliber year. This is a guy who has seen consistent regression since coming back from Tommy John. I know he won the Cy Young last year, but there was some batted ball luck. The K percentage and the whiff percentage were down. They're down again this year. He's had some batted ball luck go his way. At what point does your luck run out for a 40-year-old starter? He's look, everything you just said is spot on and he's approaching 3,300 innings. This is why he's going to get to 3,300 innings this year. And this is why I didn't like the deal with the Mets. I, I, I don't get it. And I, I mean, for look, pitching is, is king in baseball. And I mean, you just look at the, when you look in free agency in the off season and the, the mid rotation market and what some of the mid rotation arms get that get moved at the deadline. But again, this, everything just points to with both Scherzer and Verlander, like these contracts that they're signing aging terribly. And the Scherzer thing, I or the Verlander thing, he's approaching thirty three hundred innings. He's two years removed from Tommy John. He's forty years old. He's, I, I'm just not a fan of it. He, you know, he's gonna be, he's gonna be forty one. This contract's for years forty one and forty two. If he if he gets the hundred fifty inning mark next year. 
I mean, is Justin Verlander at age 42 who's going to be approaching, you know, 3,700 innings? That, that what's, what's that value? Is it 35 million? I don't think so. I, I have that. I find a hard time believing that. And um, yeah, again, like this could be the beginning. I don't want to call it because again, the Astros can be doing good things. But when you're looking, they're heading down a path that we've seen teams who have, have had these runs before in the path get to this point and there's some nostalgia and there's one or two bad moves and that's all it takes to yep. tank you. And so we'll see, but yep. let's get to some of these other deals that. Well, I want to, I, I want to talk, I kind of want to talk about the other side of this with the, with the Mets is kind of Max Scherzer's side of it. And while people, cause it's been consistent, right? Like Justin Verlander's had this really good July, right? He's pitched really well. He had a one point, whatever ERA, you know, his, his stuff seemed to be ticking back up. He obviously had the energy injury at the beginning of the year. Max Scherzer has been dealing with some injuries, but the swing and miss is still there, right? And we talk about stuff so much, right? There is no direct way to quantify stuff. But I think the one thing, the one way to correlate stuff and how good a guy's stuff still is, is swing and miss, right? I think that everybody would agree with that. And as it stands right now, Max Scherzer has better swing and miss numbers than Justin Verlander. Justin Verlander's more have been a pitch to contact guy this year. Is it crazy to think that Max Scherzer over when we compare these two could outperform Justin Verlander in this new uniform in Texas, just because the swing and miss stuff is still there. Cause that tells me that there's something that he's still doing with the baseball. That's making hitters have a hard time seeing it and a hard time barreling up. (sighs) That's a really tough question. Outside of the COVID-shortened year, uh, this is his highest hits per nine since he was a young guy in Detroit. He's got a fifth that's at 472. So although there's the swing and miss there, there's still signs of regression with Scherzer. He's been he hasn't been able, like he's lost the slider. He's found the slider. He's lost the slider. Um, I think the fastball doesn't quite have the same life. The velo is still there, but I think you can see some of that bite that he used to have to the fastball isn't there. So I think they're kind of in the same boat to me. Like potentially, yeah, it's a coin flip, I guess, to answer your question. You know, I don't know if there's that many – the swing and miss, you're right. Like missing bats is something that is extremely, extremely important in Major League Baseball. Scherzer can still miss bats. I think that's just something that he has, especially – I mean, he has an equalizing changeup, which is, you know, if you have a a really good changeup, your whiff percentage is usually, you know, boosted by that. So I think that there's the potential. I see the path you're heading down, but there's also some numbers here that are kind of scared. I mean, he's always been bitten by the home run ball. He's thrown 107 innings this year, and he's given up uh, 23 home runs, right? And, and 220 innings in, in 18, he gave up 220. Gave up 23 in, in uh, 16 and 228, he gave up 31. So he's probably going to be somewhere in that. And that's concerning when his hits per nine are also higher because now if those aren't solo home runs, those are two, three run homers that can get you. So it'll be interesting to see. Like, I don't know. Um, I don't know which deal ends up looking better, to be honest with you. I think it could be either or. I don't like either one. I wouldn't want either one of those contracts on my on my team, to be honest with you. I mean, with them being paid down, like I would be comfortable with, with the Rangers side of things. They gave up one. Sure, one and, and the Rangers and- – I think because – I think we view it a little bit differently too for the Rangers, the fact that they didn't have a chance to sh- sign Scherzer this offseason. They went out and they got DeGrom, and unfortunately that didn't work out. So they they needed a frontline guy. They're trying to hold off those Astros. It'll be, it'll be fascinating to watch play out. Yeah, and I think ultimately – and my point of the whiff and, and how that translates is we see that year over year. Like Garrett Cole got bit by the home run bug pretty consistently in his first couple years in pinstripes. Well, what has he done better this year? Eliminate the home run bug, right? And I don't know exactly what translates into the home run bug, but both Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer, neither of them are sinker ballers. Neither of them are soft contact guys. They've always been guys who rely on that swing and miss. And that's why for me, when I look at Max Scherzer, who sits at a, you know, above league average K percentage, above league average whiff percentage, pretty consistently above those league averages that you're really just missing barrels away from and consistently missing barrels. We're not talking about like even Lance Lynn, we're talking about going to LA and kind of turning his, his season around because he's still getting the whiffs. There's still something he does with the baseball that confuses hitters and gets them off balance that 
you is it's not crazy to think that when a guy's still showing the ability to show to get whiffs that very rarely do guys just throw batting practice that all they do is strike out and give up home runs. The only guy off the top of my head that ever did that was Chris Archer for whatever reason. <laughs> he just always gave up. He always missed a ton of bats and he always gave up a ton of home runs. But we literally saw this kind of unfold with Garrett Cole coming into this year. He's the Scion front runner in the AL because all he did was cut that home run bug in a third, right? Or in half. And if Max Scherzer can cut that home run bug, you know, just a little bit, you know, some of the parks in the AL West are a little bit bigger. Not that Texas isn't. Uh, Texas is definitely a hitters friendly park, but you can go out to Seattle and pitch. You can go out to these other ballparks and pitch and have a little bit more of a spacious outfield. And those home runs that turn into flyouts now, now he's punching out eight, nine and in, in six innings and only given up one earned run because that one three-run home run that was his kryptonite with the Mets is now a flyout. Or a guy just yeah, but, misses it, right? But I, I, none, So I'm just going to give you some – strikeout to walk is down. Strikeouts for well, nine. He's 40 years old. This is his worst year of his career. Everything's going to be down, so but I'm it, trying to see the silver you? lining. I know. No, but I'm, I'm just saying because if the whiff is still there, that tells me he's still doing something with the baseball that he used to do. Right. That that's the statement I'm trying to make. Whereas Justin Verlander sits below league average K percentage, below league average whiff percentage, career lows in both of those that aren't even close. He was at twenty seven point eight K percentage. He's down to twenty one K percent K's this year. Like everything is down. His walk rate has doubled. Sure, he's had some really good luck with the with the barrel percentages. He's missing those barrels. So I don't know if he's doing something different that's causing that soft contact. But again, Max Scherzer's still sitting right now at 75th percentile K percentage. He's he's only 3% down from last year rather than Justin Verlander's 6% drop from last year. I just think in terms of if there's anything that I'm going to pick from both these guys that I would put my faith in, it's the ability to still miss bats at an old age because – Velo isn't everything, right? When but when right. stuff starts to decline, the first thing that's going to go is swing and miss, and you got to reinvent yourself. And is it a guarantee that this is the new Justin Verlander that we're going to see that he can pitch to a low three with belie- below league average whiff percentages? I don't see it. I'd put more faith in Max Scherzer being able to figure out the home run bug a little bit and rein in that command a little bit better and just be a little bit closer to the pitcher we've come to know as Max Scherzer. I think that's fair. I do think that's fair. Yeah. Perfect. So obviously there were a couple other trades uh, throughout baseball, so we will run through those. Uh, But first we'd like to take a second to thank our sponsors over at Routine Baseball. Routine Baseball offers authentic baseball apparel such as T-shirts, shorts, hoodies, and hats. Their products make the perfect gift for any baseball fan. Routine Baseball wants to give our listeners 10% off their order. Just head over to routine.com slash backside ground ball to receive 10% off your order today. That's routine.com slash backside ground ball to receive 10% your order today. So Dan, I do want to get into some winners and losers. We've kind of covered them a little bit and then we'll close out the podcast with some of the other trades across baseball that stood out to us. Um, I'll read through all the, all the acquisitions that teams were able to get. So um, if you want to start, I mean, we've already talked about the Mets. We've already talked about the, the fact that it was a seller's market. So those are two winners that I think would be pretty easily identified to me. So who's another winner, at least in your mind, uh, that was able to walk out of this this trade deadline pretty happy? Yeah, it's tough to 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 choose winners and losers or winners this year in my mind. I mean, you could argue, you know, a lot of these teams, but none of them are going to jump off the page. Um, but I like, I do actually like what the Marlins have done. Uh, we've been very critical of the Marlins. They went out and they they kind of went away from what we've criticized them for, right? They went and got Jake Berger, who has 25 home runs this year. Now there's a lot of to to nitpick, right? I mean, he's hitting 212, I think. He's got a 288 on base, so he doesn't get on base, but it's not, he's not a singles hitter. He's a guy who can lose the ball to give Solaire some some lineup protection. Um, because really, when you look at their lineup. It's kind of like a Raya's Solaire, and then you hope you get any type of contribution from any of the other ones. Um, and then they also get Ryan Weathers from the Padres, who last year looked like a pretty good, young, promising arm. Um, 
he's kind of been up and down with them. It's depth. I never have a problem with teams acquiring pitching depth. And then Josh Bell from the Guardians, who, you know, over there, he's going to be a platoon piece with Yuli Gurriel. He hits from the left side instead of platooning Gurriel and Cooper, who are both right-handed hitting first baseman. Go get Josh Bell, who can switch hit, at least give you at-bats and a little bit more pop from the left side. I don't hate that either. Um, so and they had gotten David Robertson last weekend. It might've come at a steep price, but look, the Marlins are in the thick of this thing. They're tied for the last wild card spot in the NL with like 13 other teams. Um, so I, I think they did a, actually did a pretty good job in, in, you know, Jake Berger, I think they have team control of Jake Berger till 2029. I think that's what I read. Um, so yeah, I, he's I, pretty I, I kind of like, I kind of like the moves that Marlins made. They went outside of what they're their typical, you know, player profile is. And and I think it allowed them to kind of start to create a balanced lineup in here and, and take them more seriously. Yeah. I think they gave up a lot ultimately. Um, yeah. The Khalil I know Watson it, one hurts. Yeah. And it's, I get getting this Gene Segura contract off your books is probably worth it. But um, which actually brings me to the fact that I do believe the Guardians are at least in some form a winner in this market winner, yeah. because you got Kyle Manzardo, who has a 44% hard hit rate in AAA as it stands right now. He was blocked in Tampa Bay system. You have pitching depth. We've always known that about the Guardians. So you're able to move Aaron Savali for that piece in that potential future middle of the order bat for you. And then you get Khalil Watson, who has struggled big time. And again, this is like the Jordan Gray situation last year when the Blue Jays moved on from him we had sat here trade deadline time of last year and said frankly that if Jordan Groshans gets traded from the Blue Jays they've given up on him have we heard much about Jordan Groshans this year so have the Marlins given up on Khalil Watson I don't think they should have because he was a first round pick last year he was in the market to go number one in an underslot deal but I'm sure the Guardians are probably pretty fired up to get him but again nobody's going to know more information on Khalil Watson than the Miami Marlins nobody's going to understand things like work ethic process approach all those things that are kind of the intangibles that set baseball players apart they know that better than anybody so if they felt comfortable to get rid of him just to offload a contract again I've seen some people I trust on social media that are absolutely ragged on the Marlins for giving up on Khalil Watson. But again, they've built lineup construction that is now more balanced, right? They had so much contact. Now you're throwing in a Jake Berger who can challenge the wall, hit some extra base hits. Josh Bell's obviously been known to do that at certain times. So, And then David Robertson at the back in your bullpen. It's it's going to make their roster a little bit better. We talked about how Jorge Soler is kind of the piece that that's kept that lineup going. Jake Berger brings a little bit of that same element there. Yeah, and, and again, sure, they've paid a steep price, but we started this episode off by talking about trading your prospects. The Marlins are in a playoff. They find themselves in a playoff spot right now. That's rare for them. They didn't go – they didn't push the chips all in. I Like, I don't hate what they did. I, I don't. You know, I, they – they went out and it, it, to me, they made smart moves and moves that can continue to help them in the way that they're a young pitching factory. Like to me, the Marlins, like if they can just for somehow, some way figure out offense a little bit more, like the Marlins will be a, a, a legit team year in and year out. Yeah, I think so too. And, and that's definitely something to keep in mind when we look at these trades and my last winner would be the Chicago White Sox. We've talked about them a little bit so far today, um, but ultimately being able to add three guys with the talent of Jake Eater, Edgar Caro, and Nick Nestrini, who are all going to be penciled into their top five of their prospects. Obviously, Kai Bush on top of that from the Angels that came over in the Lucas Giolito trade. Jake Eater was a guy that with the Marlins had a ton of helium right away when he got drafted out of Vanderbilt. He was a reliever guy. They turned him into starter. He started to throw a lot of strikes. The swing and miss stuff was there, blows out. Tommy Johnny came back. He's looked really good since, but he's a guy that the White Sox now get to take a chance on for a guy in Jake Berger that they thought was a failed first-round pick as of probably February of this year, right? Nobody expected Jake Berger to come out of nowhere this year, show the power that he's hit. So they really sold high on a guy that they might not have been sold on. Got a guy with a really high ceiling. Edgar Caro could be their catcher of the future. Obviously, we talked about him in detail. And Nick Nestrini's a really good arm. Being able to get him for Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly, who were both aging contracts, underperforming this year, huge deal for them. And I know we take it for granted, right? The Dodgers have pitching depth on pitching depth on pitching depth. We don't look 
look back at the Joey Gallo trade and Clayton Beater and absolutely torch the Dodgers when in reality we should because they take for granted their pitching depth at times. Maybe they shouldn't have moved on for Clayton from Clayton Beater at that point in time. Obviously, for an asset that didn't really perform for them, it kind of feels like they're doing the same thing with Nick Nostrini here. Obviously, they know their pitching development better than anybody, but I wouldn't be shocked if we hear Nick Nostrini's name uh, starting to creep up prospect ranks in a calendar year and, and Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly are far from a guarantee to be successful. I wish the uh, the White Sox would have taken that next step and really moved Eloy or Cease and Tim Anderson. Tim Anderson's a free agent at the end of the year, but at the end of the day, being able to get those three guys is going to really replenish that farm system. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I mean, I heard Jim Callis today talk about Eater and, and how in 2021 a scout said he's the best minor league pitcher that he'd seen all season. So, like, that, that's yeah. huge. Um, yep. And and for the White Sox to get those guys, I wouldn't be surprised if Eater's, cl- Eater's climbing up ranks too. Um, but I think that for the for the Whites or the Dodgers, like, again, this is – this is like these are good trades. This is trades that should happen. The White Sox go and get highly regarded guys. The Dodgers trade guys who they have no problem revamping their farm system. And and like you said, these guys are Dan or Dow was saying that these guys are assets. If you draft and, and scout well, then you can do just this thing. You can take a chance on Gallo and give up Beater and not lose sleep because you've got 17, you know, you got Frasso and guys like that in your system. Bobby Miller, it doesn't matter. The Dodgers will, you know, will. The Dodgers guys they took this year will be shooting up prospect ranks. So they'll go find an international guy like like Josue uh, DePaula. And, and it's like, well, who cares about the guys we traded? That's what good, good organizations do. And for the White Sox on their side, good job by them too. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure the Dodgers have some they, – they probably treat pitching prospects the same way, you know, I would in, in my fantasy leagues of like right. these guys are just – a ticking time bomb assets and and rightfully so i i, I 100 you maximize the value you can get out of a pitching prospect because a we trust ourselves to identify outlier stuff and get the next nick nostrini and you know obviously clayton beater they didn't lose too much sleep over it i'm sure and b these guys could blow out at any moment we've seen that with so many prospects at this point in time uh we spent so much time about how andrew painter was going to help the phillies now he's getting tommy john he probably won't pitch again until later next year so like it's very hard to predict these guys, even the top prospects and the Dodgers definitely have data and analytics that back those decisions up where they're probably more comfortable giving up a Nick Nostrini, but that doesn't mean the White Sox shouldn't be fired up to get Nick Nostrini because he is that high ceiling arm that they could really use at the top of their rotation potential. Yeah, they need, they need Jake Eaters. They need Nick Nostrini's. They need those guys and they need to specifically to, to develop them. So Dan, like I said earlier in the podcast, we go into the loser side of things. I mean, I could start, let's just start in the AL East. Tampa Bay Rays, losers. Boston Red Sox, losers. New York Yankees, losers. Toronto Blue Jays, kind of not losers, but still kind of losers. I guess you could say the Blue Jays were kind of winners. But yeah. ultimately, I'm not going to go through the whole league and name every loser because I probably would name 18 to 25 of teams that could legitimately have an argument to be losers. So my first loser is the league on a whole. Um, I think the league did not take advantage of a seller's market. I think the league, you know, we have these return on investments and these guys that have models and I get it was a seller's market. I am get these teams were asking for probably big name prospects. You don't want to turn away these guys that you think are the future of your programs, but of your organizations, but ultimately you have a lot of teams that were in contention that are sitting in spots competitive for wild cards that sat on their hands. And I mean, you look at a a team like the Phillies, the Phillies needed a right-handed bat really bad. Teoscar Hernandez was apparently available, but we talked about um, being able to, what are you looking at me? Rodolfo Castro doesn't do it for you. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't move the needle for me. Sorry to break it to you. Of course Um, not. (laughs) Uh, when guys like Tyler O'Neill, when guys like Teoscar Hernandez, when guys like that are available, that can actually make an impact on your roster that could move Kyle Schwarber to the DH slot because Bryce Harper has proven he could play first. To sit on your hands and not make that aggressive move for Dave Dombrowski. Dave and, Dombrowski's and, made a career on being aggressive. That is just sad to look at and sad and, to and, look at the NLE standings and see that. And the and the excuse being that they think Johan Rojas is going to be a star and that's why is really 
yeah, not good. But uh, I'm going to go away from the Phillies because at least they got Michael Lorenzen and pitching depth. There's again, like I don't, I'm never going to say bad job to pitching depth. Should the Phillies have made other moves? Yeah, are they a loser? Yeah, like they didn't. And, but again, I also kind of understand Dave Dabrowski in the sense that one right-handed bat, especially of the caliber of like Tommy Pham, isn't going to change this lineup when JT Ramuto, Bryce Harper, Nick Castellanos, Kyle Schwarber, and Trey Turner are getting paid hundreds of millions of dollars and all underperforming really badly right now. So for me, you know, I kind of understand it, but they're a loser. But for me, it's the Cubs. I mean, I, I just can't get over the Cubs and the Padres. I'll lump them together. I can't get over what these two teams did. I mean, the Padres go out and they buy, which to me is one of the more ridiculous things that I, I mean, the Padres are seventh in the wild card standings. Currently they sit Five out. Now, people say they're talented. And again, I've been waiting all year for a good run to come. They went out and swept the Rangers and immediately lost last night. So again, anytime they do something good, they've yet to win four consecutive games this year, which is just a mind-blowing stat. And yeah, five games isn't that much, but you have to leap six teams that are ahead of you. That is, you have to be the best team in baseball for the next two months. So instead of trading, the, even if you wanted to hold the guys in the lineup that you've paid for on long-term deals and just trade the Snells and the haters are on expiring deals. Fine. You could get some value back. You go out and you acquire Scott Barlow. Who's good. Garrett Cooper, G-Man Choi and Rich Hill. I, like, so you didn't even make moves that really improve. Like, are they the difference in turning this team around? I don't think so. And then the Cubs for me, the Chicago Cubs, you had arguably the best position player available on, on a rental deal in Cody Bellinger. And you sit there and not only do you hold on to him and not get value back, you then ship out prospects and go get uh, Jimer Candelario. And I mean, they got a, a, a not, you know, a low end reliever from the Royals, but still you're shipping out prospects for that. The Cubs, you're in sixth in the wild card standings. You're only three, three and a half out. But again, you have to hop five teams to get in. That is not easy. And I guess, Technically, these teams only have to jump three and the Padres have to jump four. But still, that's a lot of clubs that now have to fall apart or you have to play better than just to get in and get a chance at a three-game series in the wild card. It makes no sense. Cubs, you could trade Cody Bellinger and then re-sign him this offseason, get a ton of – in a seller's market where you would have gotten some really good prospects to beef up your farm system. Could have done the same with Stroman. Stroman's value has gone down, but – Look at the names that moved and what they moved for in the starting pitching market. You could have gotten some real – the Dodgers? What would, could you have gotten from the Dodgers farm system for a guy like Marcus Stroman today? You could have gotten a pretty good arm <clears throat> or pretty good prospect package. So for me, it just makes absolutely no sense. Um, I, I, I don't get why – I don't get what the Cubs are doing. I just can't – I can't stand it. They've played one good month of baseball, and they're at 500. I guess the other thing with these teams, it's not like you're a team that's shown over the course of the year that you're one of the, like, okay, we're seven games over 500 and we're three and a half out. You're a 500 club. I really find it hard to believe that 81 wins and the Padres on an 80 win pace is going to be good enough to get you into the playoffs. It's tough for me to understand. I'm going to defend the Padres for a second. Shocker. Um, But I, I will say that they, there were, was an executive that kind of came out with a quote unnamed um, that said, what are the Padres going to add? They have superstars across the field. The Padres need depth. They need guys to come in. They need a platoon at DH, which is pretty much exactly what they were able to do with G-Man Choi and Garrett Cooper, right? Those guys might make the difference for a pot. Like, who are you going to add that's going to become and sure, be an sure. alpha okay, in so a maybe Padres they shouldn't have bought, roster? But, but if you're three games under 500, the seventh team in the wild card standings, having to hop four to get in, and you're saying all we need are fringe of the roster guys, you're probably not good enough in my opinion. You know who needed fringe of the roster guys? The Atlanta Braves. The Atlanta Braves are a million games over 500. They're by far the best team in baseball. Uh, the Rangers needed you know, like those type of teams. If you if you're the Padres, look again. Those guys can turn it around. They have superstars across their roster. But to me, in a seller's market, when you have some rental piece, like that's why to me it's even more incentive for them to sell. Get rid of Hater. Get rid of Snell. Recoup value from prospect level value and go win in 2024. When hopefully these guys have an, an off season to figure it out and come back and and play to their abilities. Instead, you add to the fringes of your roster to 
have to fight and claw to get a shot at a three game series. I, to, I just wouldn't take it. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it. I, I, I get what you're saying, but I think this is where, in my opinion, context comes in play. You talked about the teams that they have to leap three wild card spots. These are the teams that are realistically competing for these wild card spots. And I would ask you, who do you think the best three teams are? And I know we've been talking about this with the Padres all year. Maybe they're just not it. Phillies, San Fran, Arizona, Milwaukee, the teams that San Diego actually has to jump come into play now, Miami and Chicago, right? To get to that point where there then be a half game out. I get what you're saying, but I just feel like they're better than the Cubs as it stands right now. I think you talked about that, why they're probably better than the Cubs. I think they're better than the Marlins right now. I think you could probably make an argument they're better than the Giants. They haven't played that way. You'd probably argue that the Arizona Diamondbacks, who have not played great baseball since the All-Star break, they're probably better than. So I think when push comes to shove, that if if they can get on a roll like they did last year down the stretch – they are the be- they are one of those three teams that ends up in a wild card spot in my opinion so i think that not abandoning ship at that point in time depend again snell could have netted you you know game changing prospects i mean that that's something in a in a seller's market that we didn't and Hader that we wouldn't consider and Hader david robertson look at the return david robertson got yeah, imagine what Hater could get. I yeah, one hundred percent. I I get what you're saying, but I also see the fact of like we have these guys locked up for ten years. Why would we waste a playoff opportunity? Like these guys are here, the Tatises are here, the Machados are here, the Bogarts are here. Musgrove, Darvish isn't going to be young any day. <laughs> like every day, Darvish gets older. Like just remember, yeah. we've got him locked up. So I could at least see the argument to be made for for hey, we're better than the Cubs. We're better than Miami. We're better than San Fran. Like, let's show it at some point. Again, we we sit here, we could go 15 rounds talking about the Padres needing to show it. But I could see, at least I could see where they're coming from at that point in time with the wild card. Now, if they were competing in the AL East, I'd be like, sell, sell it off. I mean, we're talking about the Yankees, who are probably another loser, who are four games above 500, and people are pissed they didn't sell their their pieces. And and they're sitting currently, um, I'm trying to get it to load here, about how many games back they are. They are, they're three and a half back, it looks like, of... The wild card, I believe. Yep, three and a half back of the wild card. And people are pissed at them for not selling. They've had a joke of a year, and they're four games above 500. But they're a loser. All they added was Kenyon Middleton. But uh, the only difference I'll say is the Yankees are four games over playing at about an 85-win pace, and they only have to hop two, three teams to get in, two teams to get in. I get it, but those teams are better than what Now, I think the Yankees should have sold as well, (laughs) to be honest with you. Or not sold, but... I don't know, done something different than what they – I don't think what they did was nearly a good move because they did nothing, and I think that's like buy or sell, one or the other, what I, I think was your option, not nothing. And it's kind of funny that – I think it's really funny actually that the Yankees have the, one of the best – I think they have the best bullpen ERA in, in baseball and they have a bunch of other woes and all they did was add two relievers. But I, yeah, I just – I don't know. I can't get on board with – I, I, I can't. It's, the Cubs especially – I mean the Cubs. I just I don't I I don't see it at all. The Padres. I I think that again, maybe they can be rewarded with two good months of baseball is all you need to get in. But I I would have to imagine Milwaukee's continued to play better now. You know you look at their last ten. People have to remember that six of their last ten had come against the Atlanta Braves. So like yeah they're three and seven in their last ten, but six of those games were against them. So I think Milwaukee's continued to play better baseball where they're not playing the Braves. I think Miami got their roster better. I kind of like what the Diamondbacks did. They needed a starter. They failed in that regard. And then the Phillies and the Giants, look, like they're both flirting with 10 games over. The Padres are three games under. So like that's yeah. all, that's no, I don't think they're to make I don't think up. they're chasing down the Phillies. The Giants maybe, I don't know. Like again, that roster is not very good, and and no. Garrett Cooper this year is OPSing eight seventy one versus left handed pitchers, and J Man Choi's OPS is eight ten on his career against right handed pitchers. So, you're probably talking about a step up in production from Jake Cronenworth trying to face both sides of that plate of that platoon. Um, so, but 
any other things that, that you kind of want to cover before we get out of here? We've kind of been going on and on about, obviously, all these all these trades that we've liked and, and any other losers that you want to identify. I I think, I mean, again, I think I, with the Reds, were, the Reds, I kind of get it. I mean, Nick Kroll and company won the ownership, wants no money on the books. They I, Didn't he go on the radio before the season started and threaten to – move this franchise so that yeah. they're dealing with a tough so for them to be in this position in the first place is shocking and i think they were probably again they probably look around their front office meetings and go how are we in first place in this good i would have liked to see them do something just to get a, a, an arm and a controllable arm i get that like i think their prospects right now when you look at where their prospects are at i would have went in all, all in for dylan cease and said any guy on the minor major league roster outside of ces is is un, is untouchable and then go with our other prospects and put together a rotation of cease abbott uh green and lodolo and like now i could i would be buying in on the reds for the next several years but you know uh, they're not as as concerning as some of the other teams and the rays like the rays you've been one of like you got off to that great start and you haven't done anything really in a couple like in the last month you had a terrible july you had a you they have some holes in that roster that they need to fix so yeah i think from the red standpoint and again i heard dan o'dowd talk about this which anybody who tuned in at mlb network was in for a treat uh because they did an absolute phenomenal job but he mentioned the fact that green and lodolo coming back and feeling like they were the arms that they're capable of being, the Reds weren't as desperate as the Orioles should have been in adding a season. Right. Um, yes. Because they believe they have their three top arms of the future. And is it, yes, a Dylan Cease makes a difference on every team across the MLB, but is it worth the investment? You know, is the juice worth the squeeze at today, at this point in time where the White Sox were probably asking for the world, you weren't comfortable giving up the world, you're not desperate to win this year, you still believe you have a future. And again, I think the White Sox are going to revisit the whole Dylan Cease thing in the offseason anyway. 100%. They're going to have to do some reflection on what they actually well, no, intend to be as a franchise. In 24, so. They say that now, <laughs> and then they're going to have to do a little reflection. But I think that that will set in stone. Maybe they can get, you know, and and maybe they trusted that once they, once the asking price got a little bit out of their skis, they were probably like, okay, like if they move them to Baltimore, if they move them to LA, we're okay with that, but we're not comfortable going this high. And then they pick up the phone in January and say, Hey, we'd really like to get Dylan Cease. These are the prospects we're willing to move. This is where we stand right now. And maybe the Reds do end up picking up a Dylan Cease in the off season. I don't think they're as desperate. And, you know, we could go a whole episode about the Orioles too, about not getting Dylan Cease. And, and but I'm going to trust what, what Mike Elias does. They ended up getting your guy, Jack Flaherty, who's been one of your guys from since day one. He's been really good recently. Um, so uh, that's, that's definitely a, a positive we should say i'm not going to call him a winner but a positive but obviously a super fun episode there today uh really enjoyed that but thank you to our listeners for tuning in as that will conclude our episode make sure you're subscribing to the podcast on all podcast platforms including apple Podcasts, spotify and anywhere you find your pods we post episodes every monday wednesday and friday always hitting your feed at 7 a.m sharp don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Backside GB, Instagram at Backside Ground Balls, and TikTok at Backside Ground Ball. And most importantly, make sure you're sharing with five friends. And we'll see you next time on the Backside Ground Balls podcast. Great news. Major League Baseball is back. The college baseball season continues to electrify. And with the help of our friends over at SeatGeek, we can get you out to whatever game you want to see. All you need to do is head over to SeatGeek. Find your game you want to go to and enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to get $20 off your first purchase. Maybe you want to go see some NBA or NHL playoffs. I don't know. Maybe you want to go to a concert with the weather warming up throughout the country. No matter what event you're looking to go to, our friends at SeatGeek can hook you up with the best deals. Great seats at an affordable price. You can't beat it. Make sure to enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL for $20 off. That's SeatGeek.com. Promo code backside ground ball.